and welcome to the American Cinema Foundation Movie Podcast. I'm your host Titus and today I'm joined in the Postmodern Conservative series by Angelo Codevilla. Mr. Codevilla became nationally famous as a conservative polemicist with his 2010 essay America's Ruling Class and the Perils of Revolution. The late Rush Limbaugh read it in its entirety for hours on his show. The essay was then turned into a volume, a tract for the times, and the subsequent decade of American politics has proved it right in every essential respect. This is the culmination of a long career. Mr. Codivilla was born in 1943 in Italy and emigrated as a boy to America. He got his PhD in political science at the Claremont Graduate School, and he has been a Claremont Institute Senior Fellow for a long time now. He served in the Navy Reserves, he went into the Foreign Service, and then to Capitol Hill, where he served in the Senate as professional staff for eight years on the Senate Select Committee on the Intelligence during the Carter and Reagan years. And he has also taught political science for decades. He is now a professor emeritus at Boston University. He has written on the Strategic Defense Initiative, that is Ballistic Missile Defense, on disarmament plans, and equally he is a translator of Machiavelli's Prince, so he knows executive power better than most conservatives, and he is also a more vigorous polemicist than most intellectuals. Mr. Codevilla sent me his recent essay for The Tablet. He also writes for American Greatness, for the various Claremont publications, etc. And so I called him to talk about his daring ideas about cancellation, about using the weapons of our oligarchic overlords against them. Hello, Mr. Codevilla. This is Titus Tsekera calling. Yes, yes, yes. This could give the structure of our interview, our conversation for today. All right. For conservatives yeah. and anybody who is not interested in being wokeified or enslaved, what, right, right. what is needed at the federal level? What could be done at the state level? These two kinds of things. Especially... Well, the very first thing at all levels is take away respect. Yeah. The main point is that uh, cancellation is inherently a two-way street. They're canceling you, and you are canceling them. I mean, you you can't simply say, oh, let me in, let me in. No, you say, oh, well, all right. You don't like me? Guess what? I don't don't like you either. Bye-bye. Look, the number one practical problem that we are facing, talking about a practical problem, is inherent in oligarchies, namely that state powers, public powers are being wielded by ostensibly private organizations. You try to fly in an airplane without a mask and uh, you're in trouble. You go into a large store, not a small one, but a large store, chain store, a national level store uh, without a mask and you know they try to throw you out. Well, the only way to deal with that is to do it en masse. And to say, okay, starting on April 1, if this store, uh, airline, whatever, tries to enforce masks on anybody, it will be boycotted by everybody. Thank you and good night. That is one way to deal with it. It's not the only way to deal with it. The other way, of course, is to uh, extend the Bill of Rights since the, the, the shape of the polity has changed and the, the violations of the Bill of Rights are being perpetrated by ostensibly private organizations. The thing to do is to extend the Bill of Rights to those organizations. I mean, it's that simple. The point being that you can't have it both ways. 
you can't have a private privilege and at the same time to have uh, no public responsibility. Well, look, look, there are all sorts of examples out there already. They're not particularly happy examples, but ever since 1964, if you own a bakery or, or you know, a lunch counter, uh, you cannot turn away someone for service on the ground of race or really anything else. I mean, public accommodation law is that if you are open to the public, you must serve the public, period. Now, it's entirely logical to add political statements to the list of things that may not be discriminated against. There are all sorts of things that can be done, but, and now I get to the final point, all of these things take leadership, and that is what we haven't got. Yes, it seems much of your polemic is trying to remind us that we should behave with self-respect, to not let ourselves be trampled, and to demand a certain oh, yes, treatment. Yes, yes. But I'm, what I'm saying is that it's a lot easier, but politics is inherently a collective activity. One of the things I pointed out in that article is that uh, Charles de Gaulle, during the occupation in the 1940s, warned the people against individual acts of resistance. No, no, don't do these things individually. Do them only as part of a larger national political enterprise led by, well, at that time, Charles de Gaulle. But what we need here is somebody to step forward and say, I will lead the deplorables out of slavery in Egypt, yeah? And uh, I will organize Follow me. Yeah, an exodus is necessary, and that means consolidation of power, of organizations, of wealth and enterprises in red states, in conservative America, and therefore this leadership. It certainly does. But again, the condition for that is some prominent person, or two or three or four, stepping forward and saying, okay, this is the way it's going to be. Follow me, and we'll wreck these bastards. Follow me, and, and I'll take you out of here. Right now, the closest we've got to this is Governor DeSantis. Yeah, he's proven willing to take a lot of flack over the last year and govern well, that's Florida. Right. And, and the other one, of course, is Governor Christy Noem of South Dakota. She's also a rising star, it seems, but of course, it's a much smaller she state, is. so it doesn't have quite the same She's importance. also good-looking, which doesn't hurt. Indeed, that's some kind of political talent as well beauty as oh, Aristotle says. She has a way of, of speaking the most I don't say outrageous, but the hardest things in the softest manner. <laughs> yeah, I see your point that again a useful trick for a politician who has to get across unpleasant it's, things as well. The hard things in a in a soft and I mean, again it helps if you're a beautiful woman. <laughs> That's mother right. of you know mother of three <laughs> And so with these politicians, we get at least a glimpse of a coming resistance to oligarchic control and, well, and shutdown right. of the country. That's right. And uh, yeah. Governor Abbott in yeah, Texas is also... To be, there has to be national level. Of, by the way, that's the way it's always been. Uh, think back, back in the 1780s, 1790s, there were a whole bunch of Washingtonians. Well, there wouldn't have been any Washingtonians without Washington. There wouldn't have been any Jeffersonians without Jefferson, any Jacksonians without Andrew Jackson, uh, and, and on and on and on. I mean, the reason that the country was rallied as it was to uh, stop the spread of slavery was had to do a lot with Abraham Lincoln, you know, who stepped forward and made the argument and sustained it. 
Ronald Reagan, again, there was a tremendous movement. You're, you're too young to remember it, probably, yeah. in the um, 60s and 70s. But that was largely thanks to the leadership of Ronald Reagan. It's not that Ronald Reagan ran the whole thing, but people would look to Reagan and say, ah, that's us. And Reagan looked at this whole movement and said, yeah, this is ours. And he, he knew who he was leading, and the people knew who the leader was. There wasn't anything contractual. There were no membership cards or anything like that. But, you know, there's Donald Trump was something like that, except that Donald Trump barked a lot and bit only a little. You know, you, you can't uh, go around uh, saying big things and then letting the bad guys run all over you. Yeah, these are the two problems we're dealing with. It's very hard to find national leaders, and it's also very hard to persuade anybody willing to do the job or eager to do the job that it's not just rhetoric, it's also action. You have to be political. Well, that's right. It's got to be. And look, they know that. I mean, uh, whether anybody likes it or not, the last several years have taught them lessons. Number one, that you can't talk like Trump talked. And then not hurt your enemies. You actually have to be able to do that. You have to actually lead people and give them safety in numbers, give them safety and cohesion. So people, you don't want to go to one of these sessions where you're told about uh, white privilege. All right, well, if you don't, you'll get fired. But if some national leader has organized 10,000, a million people to protest on, on a particular day to protest that stuff, uh, why is it different? Then you're in power. They're not. You can't fire everybody. Yeah, and indeed, the organization is also this kind of problem. Each of us individually is very vulnerable to cancellation, to threats of losing jobs or just sure. losing job opportunities. And therefore, sure. a great deal of organization is necessary just so that yeah. people can go on with ordinary life without feeling afraid. Well, exactly. Uh, and look, in politics, as well as in economics, there is a law of supply and demand. Put yourself in the shoes of someone with national ambitions on the conservative side of things. Well, you know what you've got to do. You know that you've got to, number one, get out of front. Number two, you know that you've got to actually deliver safety. You have to deliver results, which, by the way, is what DeSantis is doing. It's early in the 2024 cycle, but that's what he's doing. Indeed, it seems it took especially the aggravation, the political strife after 2016 for people to even realize how much demand there is for safety on the conservative side. Right. And therefore, what opportunities there are for leaders who are only beginning to come up. Well, that's right. They know that they're not going to get anywhere by being recycled versions of Jeb Bush. Yeah. <laughs> that's not going to go anywhere. Uh, or Mitt Romney. Or, or uh, what's his name? Uh, McConnell. I mean... If you have national ambition and you present yourself that way, you've just committed parakiri. You're not going to go anywhere. The only way you're going to go somewhere is by being literally to the right of Donald Trump. Yeah. I, and, and I mean, I don't mean in terms of rhetoric. I mean, in terms of uh, real leadership for real safety and promotion of our way of life. Indeed, perhaps when it is realized that this way of life is endangered, there is more oh, no, of the, an opportunity to already. act to I mean, protect it. Yeah, that's happened. Thank goodness that has happened. I wrote an essay for American Greatness called Clarity After Trump. Clarity means a lot. 
there's no doubt about what is going on. I mean, cancellation of Dr. Seuss, what, you got to be kidding me. Bugs Bunny, no, 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 no. I mean, normal human beings, no, no. That's not normal in anybody's book. Yeah, it seems like these actions gain by their brazenness, by their very shamelessness, they assert that one side in the political conflict can simply change the situation, can simply change what well, people right. believe and what people well, can that's do. that's right. And, and that is a kind of challenge that uh, can't be ignored. Uh, by the way, to tell you how clear things are, you may have heard that the president of France, Macron, has said publicly that this movement coming out of the United States of America is a danger to France and to all cultures, all people. Yes, indeed. That was a moment of clarification for the limits of this sort of woke ideology which has been spreading in Europe, more in England sure. than on the continent. Uh, they've seen it go to the United States. They said, no, hey, wait a minute. This simply can't go on. You know, there was a time not long ago when the woke left was claiming that uh, their culture, what they were pushing, was inclusive. And it was really the culture of cultures, that it was included everybody, that it was friendly to all cultures. Well, the truth that has turned out, and it's now pretty indisputable, is that the woke movement is the reverse of all that that it is a very, very, very peculiar culture that uh, is meaningful only to a very small number of people. Exactly. This is a new version of democracy where the demos is the first to be excluded. Yeah, right. Politically and culturally, they have painted themselves into a corner, and the corner is getting smaller and smaller, say. They hold all the power, but the number of people on whose behalf they wield that power is small and shrinking. Yeah, in a way, that is the great political struggle going on. Can the control of elite institutions silence the majority? Can it get people to obey? Can it humble, shame, scare well, that's the just people? This, the, the answer to those questions are up to us, not them. Exactly. This is one of the very good points you're making, that cancellation is a two-way street, that people who treat you without respect forfeit your respect in return. And as we have clarity in arguments, we also have it in society. People are moving out of places they hate and try to find a better way of life in those places that have not been taken under this sort of elite oligarchic control. Yeah, so, so that's, that's, that, that, but that is the least of it. So let's now go back to the original question. What is to be done? It would be counterproductive for the right to struggle for control of the institutions because those institutions are now so thoroughly identified with the people who run them that it's extraordinarily difficult to unseat them all and reseat them. And the greater question is, why even try? Why not just make our own and say, okay, you want Facebook and Twitter to be organs of workers? Okay, take it. All yours, go away. Except none of us are going to be involved with them. You want Harvard and Stanford and high-ranking universities as a kind of a club for your own kind, when your own kind is not the excellent kind, because we say that they have, in fact, given up on objective status. Keep them. Who the blankety-blank wants to go to Harvard? Go to hell. Uh, we will run schools strictly on the basis of merit. Uh, yeah? And our people who are chosen for merit 
who are, are given lots and lots and lots of work, whereas folks at Harvard are given very little work, will outperform yours. And so if you are a serious uh, entrepreneur or a serious person who wants to listen to somebody who's serious, you're going to go to somebody who was chosen on the basis of his uh, social profile and who worked very little, or you're going to go with somebody who was chosen on the basis of objective performance and worked like hell. Well, you're going to go with the latter. Devalue Harvard. Tell him to go to hell. Yeah, so freedom requires competition. We need to make institutions, and this is something that conservatives have not been doing for a long time, and it is only under well, the pressure a, of events. I have a, I have a uh, former student who right now is running a small college and is now about to run a larger private school in Texas. And uh, his pitch to prospective parents and prospective students is, look, we're not almost as good or as good as... Belmont Hill and Choate and places like that, we're better. We're a lot better because I can guarantee you that when your kids come to, to me, I'll make them work and I'll turn out people who are better than the ones who went to these other places. So that would also require that red states take control of the school systems, of the state universities, of all these resources that are absolutely important for each new generation of citizens and, of course, preparation for work and education more broadly in a humanistic sense. But at the same time, even in conservative states up to now... The the one law that would destroy the um, primary, secondary school monopoly is any school that receives any manner of federal assistance must receive its funding directly from the parents of the students attending. In other words, mandating vouchers. Yeah. In other words, if you get your money by other than cashing parent bike vouchers, you don't get any federal funds. So conservatives need to learn again about the power of the purse and... um, The power of the purse, So with the issue of education, competition here means vouchers for the families to be in control of what their kids will be doing, where they go to school, what they are there for studying. But it also requires a kind of encouragement. These institutions should be places where young conservatives can go teach, can make a career for themselves, can become leaders in their community. Once the, the monopoly is broken, then it's broken for all purposes. Indeed. So there are astonishing opportunities ahead, actually. There are, if we take advantage of them. Uh, there's nothing quite like leadership. Somebody saying, hey, look, not Angelo Codavilla, but um, somebody who could be president of the United States, saying, that's what I want. And that's the law I'm going to be pushing. And that is what's going to destroy the K-12 monopoly. Well, we have already talked about the problem with media, the need to create new media, to create competition in political opinion, and to give people a polemic use of their self-respect, to deny respect to those who would humiliate them. And we've talked about the issue of education as well, and the need for competitive institutions here. But another part of the problem is not at state, but at federal level. Conservatives are learning in a shocked way that institutions they used to believe in, above all law enforcement and the military, are at least at the top corrupted and against conservatives. Yeah. It, oh, yes. well, it was in the news uh, just the, last week that the, uh, Tucker Carlson was being criticized uh, by various generals and other high officials in the military. Absolutely. Uh, and there's nothing quite like, again, everything starts with saying so. 
You don't hear anymore, but up until recently, you could turn on the Hannity show and hear all oh, these wonderful policemen. You know, the police are on our side. The police, the police, the police, the police. No, no, and no. The police uh, work for whoever pays them. That's the problem. And the police will tase a lady or, or arrest somebody because they violate what the mayor or the governor says ought to be done. So, no, and, and as far as the armed forces are concerned, I mean, this cannot be allowed. And, and the way to disallow it is for conservatives to vote as a block against uh, appropriations for the armed forces. Now, follow me for a moment. Sure. Not so long ago, bills that fund the armed forces came in many pieces, and each of the pieces used to be voted on separately. There was a personnel account, there was a military construction account, weapons, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Well, that used to give a great deal of power to whoever would make a point out of particular problems. Now, these terrible personnel policies are in the process of ruining the armed forces. If conservatives can protest the bundling of all military appropriations into one lump, and if they can go back to the system of having hearings and votes on each part, they can darn well kill or, or cut the personnel accounts. Now, I assure you that there's one thing which the military treasures far above everything else, including ideology, <laughs> never mind ideology, and that is the opportunity for advancement, the opportunity for promotion. They will do anything to increase the number of senior officer billets. If conservatives vote as a bloc to restrict the number of senior officer billets, they will literally have their hand around the gonads <laughs> of the armed forces, because that's what they really care about. Yeah, the Republican Party is not far from winning the House of Representatives again. It might happen in 2022. And then, indeed, rethinking the appropriation. Senate, the Senate, the Senate. And, yeah. of course, the Senate, which is already 50-50. mostly a free enterprise institution. Uh, I mean, I, I served in the Senate for eight years. By golly, uh, I know for a fact that whoever is bloody-minded, whoever really has a bug up his... Up his rear and uh, really wants to have something done can have his way because most people will not oppose him. And those who are really interested in something generally can get their way. Yes, the Senate is much more attuned to individual leadership and much less run by strict majority concentrated yeah. in the hands of leadership. And therefore, it should encourage ambitious politicians to pursue something of great importance to their electorate and make their voices heard by denying approvals. Yeah, yeah. That's the, the, you just put your finger on it. Denying something is a lot easier than affirming it. Saying no in Congress is a lot easier than saying yes. And it seems that until now, perhaps not the politicians, but certainly not the electorate, people were not aware of the extent to which the institutions of the federal well, government right. are being used against that's conservatives. That's why the current situation is an opportunity, because now there's no doubt. It's clear. One thing I wish conservatives made much more of is the fact that we have ended up in an America where the former director of the FBI, of the CIA, can turn into a partisan pundit on MSNBC and people don't even blink. Yeah. How is this possible well, yeah, yeah, for you know, such uh, high this, officials? This is the problem. <coughs> 
Donald Trump was a jerk, a complete jerk. No doubt. Because he could have stopped that instantly. Look, there are laws on the books, black letter, clear as a bell laws against these people even mentioning or hinting at information gained through communications intelligence. That law, those laws, unlike uh, the Espionage Act, do not require all manner of proof about intentions or anything like that. They are what they're called strict liability laws. You reveal or purport to reveal something gained through communication intelligence, you go to jail, period. Now, Donald Trump could have appointed, should have appointed, an attorney general to do exactly that. I mean, this is black letter law, you know. This is not legal reaching. This is plain black letter law. He didn't do it. He's scared. He was scared of the, of the agencies. And so long as you have somebody doing that, by, by the way, this is another reason why I think that the prospect of Donald Trump running again would be a disaster. Tell me, Donald, what are you going to do different now that you didn't do your first time around? Yeah, it's very hard to believe that the same man would succeed the second time around in a much feebler station of life still. What is needed yeah. is younger people who have seen what happens when you wave a red flag at the bull that is the federal government. <laughs> they will come at you with everything. And so yes, hopefully you, you the wave next... wave a red flag at the bull, you better have the muleta. Indeed. You better have the sword right behind the red flag. It's still astonishing how much something like the FBI has become a tool of political controversy, of scandal, and of all sorts of, yeah. uh, you know, uh, malfeasance. And it, it, that has to way, be said, uh, people have to this learn what is happening. This, this did not happen overnight. This has been coming for a long time. The institution indeed has to have been politicized so that it, its entire ethic has been corrupted. Yes, it has. The thing to do is to put it under foreign counterintelligence side, to put it under the uh, armed forces. Yes, this is something you have written about again and again. Yes, yes Having yes. the central uh, intelligence yeah, agency... There's a natural sorts... discipline. Operations are a natural discipline on intelligence. Indeed, you cannot separate intelligence from its military uses. You're just creating a political center in the government. Yeah, that's right. And indeed, presidencies have been ruined this way, and the executive as such weakened, in fact. Yeah. And suspicion about the CIA is not so new, but that it should have happened to the FBI is, I think, still a shock to people. Yeah, yeah. Well, the uh, CIA was not very good <laughs> from the very beginning. The FBI used to be pretty good. Uh, not the CIA. Oh, yeah, yeah. That's all right. It's a long story. Yeah, and it seems like this is the time for people to learn these stories and to reevaluate yeah. long-standing conservative commitments yeah. to these institutions that have turned from national security to partisan purposes on behalf of the oligarchy. Yep. So this would seem to be the most important thing we have achieved, political clarity about just how yes. serious the problem is. And we could say that there's some reason to hope for that because this is how American politics works. Each major change in politics has been an attack on centralized oligarchy, usually on Washington, D.C. This is how Jefferson yeah. did it and Jackson and Lincoln. Yeah. This is what uh, Reagan yeah. did too. And yeah, yeah, again. I, I hate to sound like a broken record, but it's leadership, leadership, leadership. Indeed, this is something that's often avoided because we're embarrassed here. We do not have the leaders we need, and now that we realize it, 
it, it's shocking. How can we be in a situation where there is nobody willing to act on our behalf? And another problem yeah. is, of course, that it's easy to make speeches and it's much harder to get things done and organize people. Uh-huh. And th- th- that's an art that uh, has to be learned Roosevelt. again. Yeah, one of my favorite quotes is the combination of the unbridled tongue with the unready hand. <laughs> yes, indeed. For a long time, people have acted as though politics was a spectator sport and essentially reducible to rhetoric. Now, action yeah, is yeah. needed again, and people have to learn how to do it. Yeah. Yep. Well, Mr. Chair, what can I? T- uh, what else can I tell you? Well, sir, I'm I'm an admirer of your work. I've read so many of your volumes and the essays. I've learned a lot about the corruption of elite institutions from you. And you could say that you have, as a public polemicist, uh, at least uh, for a decade since you wrote The Country Class and The... and the ruling class, the dichotomy of American politics that has only sharpened ever since. So you have a better title to prescience than most public commentators. uh, You know, I was surprised at how fast the logic of this whole situation has unfolded. Uh, I thought it would take longer, but uh, quickly, in 2017, I saw this whole thing coming together. But nobody could have foreseen the COVID business turning out the way it did. And remember, 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 Tito Sacera, that it could not have happened this way had it not been for Donald Trump. Yeah. It was Donald Trump who went on national television and said 15 days to slow the spread. It was Donald Trump who put Fauci on television and treated him like a god. Yeah, it was a complete failure of leadership and left the country in the hands of Uh, bureaucrats. Donald Trump handed the keys of the country to Anthony Fauci. Yes. You you can't say, oh, the left, the left, the left. No, Trump did it. Yeah, this is perhaps the bitterest pill that we have to swallow. Many of the failures that we have suffered come from our lack of action. They're not well, simply yeah, I mean, uh, Look, the, 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 the point that I made in the original uh, ruling class essay is that this ruling class is a bipartisan thing. The, the oligarchy is a bipartisan thing, which is why we have to sort of exit these institutions and forget about a whole bunch of uh, so-called leaders. Uh, again, the nicest thing about the 2016 election happened during the primaries when it was impossible for anybody to get traction who wasn't against the ruling class. So it really came down to two people, Trump and uh, Cruz. And Trump won because he was more more adamant. Never mind that there was a multi-candidate field and in a multi-candidate field, <laughs> the choice is never between A and B. Yeah. So what I'm saying is that in the future, it's not going to be any different. The only people who are going to get any traction are people who are going to make Donald Trump look like a moderate. Exactly. I mean, again, in terms of practical things done, look at DeSantis. He's far more aggressive than Trump. Indeed. He doesn't have the necessary rhetoric, but his activity as a governor has been far more decided and far less willing to put up with federal oversight well, yeah, well, uh, or Trump media was the criticism. Of the United States. Indeed. And that's true. Governor DeSantis achieved more as governor than Donald Trump did as president. Yes. One hopes that that will speak to other ambitious politicians who realize how much power lies in their hands. 
how much power there is in the hands of someone who wishes to exercise it. Exactly. For somebody who wishes look, to look exercise Look at Nancy Pelosi. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Look at the power she tries to exercise. You may remember back in 2010 when uh, Obamacare was being cooked up and some reporter asked Nancy Pelosi, in what way is, is this constitutional? And her answer was, are you kidding? Are you kidding? Yeah. <laughs> I don't give a damn whether it's constitutional or not. We're going to do it. That's indeed an important lesson for our times. Things that were thought unthinkable have kept happening the last couple of years, and they are not stopping. People have to wake up well, to right, uh, far more adversarial politics. Victory is to the bold. Indeed. Always. And so people need guidance, but only the bold can have any kind of guidance since they are the only ones who are willing to do anything in the first place. Well, that's right. Nobody follows an uncertain trumpet. That's why the motto of the Marine Corps Officer Candidate School is, follow me. Well, sir, I think we have arrived at the end of our interview. I want to thank you very much for your time. You're welcome. I think this is an exemplary polemic and a good teaching about why we need polemics in the first place, why we need competition in institutions and in leadership, why we need boldness, and why we need to look with a very skeptical eye at all of the elite institutions that still have so much prestige. That first has to be destroyed. Well, that's right. The beginning of that is simply to say so. The emperor is naked. Indeed. We are living through a test of democracy. Are the people of America still, in some sense, in charge? Can they first negatively withdraw their consent and well, then positively I, I, again, create new uh, leaders? Don't blame the people, but the leaders. Look, let me just exactly. give you one example. I have a place in Wyoming, and a lot of people ride a lot of horses. And uh, once we saw standing with an old-timer, I watched the guy get on a horse, and the horse was giving this man a tremendous amount of trouble. About to, to throw him down. And somebody said, Oh, what a bad horse. And the old timer said, No, no, no. What a bad rider. Yeah, that is the fundamental lesson of democratic politics. You blame the leaders, not the people. And uh, we need indeed much more experienced horsemen. Yeah, we need cowboys. <laughs> no, no, no. Don't say what a bad horse. It's what a bad rider. Well, sir, I think that's a perfect note <laughs> right. to end on. That's the essence of leadership, taking responsibility. All the best, sir. Okay, bye-bye.